get started. Well, welcome to Ask a Pathologist podcast sponsored by Lumania and the Digital Diagnostic Summit. The idea behind this podcast is to provide good, helpful, useful information and resources for both current pathologists and those in training. I am James Thackeray, and I sit on the board of the Digital Diagnostic Summit and the Chief Commercial Officer for Lumea. And I want to give a very warm welcome to our guest, Dr. Halal Kahane, who I've had the privilege of knowing for some years now. But I want to give him the opportunity to introduce himself. So, Halal, why don't you give us some of your background and introduce yourself for us? Sure. I'm Halal Kahane. I'm a uropathologist. I've been practicing uropathology now since 1992. I've got about 30 two years of experience doing this. I've always been in the commercial sector and I've only been looking at urological specimens, primarily prostate, needle biopsies. I've worked with both Drs. Epstein at Johns Hopkins and Dr. David Bostwick at Mayo Clinic over those 30 years and have probably looked at in excess of a million cases in the last 30 years. So that's crazy. I mean, that number is staggering. Uh, that type of experience is, uh, I mean, there, there are probably very few in the country that could could make a statement like that, right? I mean, that's how many cases oh, yeah, you've most, seen. Well, I mean, I, like I said, I only subspecialize in prostate needle biopsies, and I've worked with and, and diagnosed cases for probably in excess of 6,000 urologists and radiation oncologists over all these years, but I'd say primarily in the commercial space, not in the academic world. That's great. I remember I had I knew your name long before we ever met because I was also in the commercial space. But but uh, Dr. Kahane was your name was had had a lot of clout behind it because you had such vast experience in this world. So uh, it's always been a privilege for me to get to know you over these last few years. Well, let's jump into this we you know our format is a little different we're just uh, a smaller or i should say a shorter podcast that um we we think would be interesting um content to to other pathologists and those that are going into the field today's topic is tools for pathologists and we thought we'd start with that and maybe we we kind of navigate from there a little bit but is you just start to think about different tools that you've used in the past. And so maybe we start there. Any tools that you've used in the past that have helped you um, in, in your practice of pathology? And then we can maybe go towards uh, tools that are now becoming available and how that factors into your workflow. Um, we'd love to hear. Well, and, you know, the primary tool essentially is experience, to be honest with you. The more you do, the better you get at it. So when you're looking at a biopsy or two a week, you're not going to get very good very quickly. When you're looking at, you know, 30, 40, 50 cases, whatever the number is, in a week, a month, you, you, you pick up the, uh, the nuances extremely fast. And so, like I said, working at Dynon Systems, my first job, which is primarily a Europath lab in the early nineties, all the way up to about 2007. All I did was prostate needle biopsies. So you got real good at it and you just from, you know, eight hours a day, it's all you looked at. Any difficult cases we had at the time, 
we sent off to Johns Hopkins, to uh, John Epstein. And he would kind of fine-tune our uh, accuracy, let's say. And so we learned a lot from him. He used to come up every quarter and spend a day or two with us at Dianon and kind of teach us all the little nuances and little pitfalls not to make and not to overcall, undercall, proper Gleason grading, all, all the nuances that go into it. So it's basically, in a nutshell experience, that's kind of what you got. You know, you can't really read this in a book. You've just got to sign out cases, essentially. I love that. I love that. And I, I was going to ask, but you answered the question already, is how, you know, as you get more and more experience, how do you standardize that? And and that's pretty informative. The fact that you used, you know, one of the world-renowned GU pathologists to help kind of standardize that process throughout your experience and fine-tune it, as I think you said. So, um, that's, that's, that's a great answer. That's very insightful. As you start to look towards the future and, and, and I say look towards the future, but knowing you, you're very much a part of new developments that are coming out. How do you, what type of tools do you foresee, um, being helpful in, in the practice of pathology that will really maybe, maybe helpful is an understatement, be more of game changer tools that are, that are actively coming out that you've been a part of that, that will change kind of the way pathology is practiced. We're talking about prostate needle biopsies, correct? Correct. Yes. Well, I mean, one of the biggest game changers for me in my career was when I met you and Dr. Matt Levitt and ah. you guys introduced me to the biopsy board. That just blew me away, to be honest with you. That was, what, 2018, maybe? Whatever the year was. And I was, like, so impressed by this uh, contraption mechanism, whatever you want to call it, innovation, that I realized, you know, very quickly, this can be a game changer for the way you sign out prostate needle biopsies because you only have to look at one slide with six cores on it. as opposed to six slides with one core. I mean, I thought I was clever at Bostwick Laboratories as the medical director by inking the cores in three different colors and putting three cores per slide. So I look at four four slides, because four times three is 12, and repeating the colors. That was my huge innovation until I ran into Dr. Levin, who showed me he can one-up that, <laughs> actually double that, and showed me the biopsy chip. And it's oriented, too. That also was extremely impressive to see how the cores are oriented so we know where the proximal end is, and we know where the distal end is. Therefore, when we diagnose tumor, the urologist has a sense of where along the core the tumor lies. That's also a game changer, to be honest with you. Nobody else in the country does that, reporting. They just tell you this tumor, and they tell you the Gleason score and how much tumor, but we tell you where the tumor is in addition to that, and not only by length, but also by area, which That's... is another amazing Lumea innovation to be honest with you well that's a great great point though so let me ask you this as a pathologist though so you talked about the biopsy chip and the ability to to put all those cores on one slide but how did that that's had to have been and, and even though you were doing more cores on a slide than maybe traditionally was done in your days and you were figuring out ways to ink it and do those things how did that change from your perspective because that's a different way of I mean, if you're looking at one core per slide and now all of a sudden you've got all these different cores, just from a navigational perspective, how did that change the way um, you read your cases? Well, it changes the, the, the speed immensely. Now you can become a hell of a lot more productive, to be honest with you, because now 
you can do the six cores, not like, you know, ultra lightning fast, but it's a lot easier. And the other key thing that I didn't mention was the cores are all linear, which is also a game changer because many times you look at cores, we call it the spaghetti strand effect. They're all kind <laughs> of rolling on top of each other, the cores. And there is a possibility, to be honest with you, where tumor is masked by a benign piece of prostate that kind of lies on top of it. And it's not that you misdiagnose, it just, it just wasn't, the technology doesn't let you see beyond that core. It's kind of like, almost like a curtain effect, essentially. It's, it's covering mm -hmm. up the tumor. But with a biopsy chip, the cores are laid out horizontally or vertically, depending on how you look at it. But you're not going to miss anything. Let's put it that way. And I've noticed that, to be honest with you, because I keep close track of my malignant detection rate with Lumea. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed it's it's very high, to be honest with you, which is a kind of a good thing in a way, because then you know you're not missing stuff. Because I'm like in the mid to high 60% rate on uh, finding cancer on everyday cases, and we do lots of them on a daily basis. I was never this high prior to being part of this Lumea PassNet thing. So there's so, a huge advantage to using the biopsy chip. Got it. No, that's that's... That's really helpful. So let me ask you this, because um, I know that you've been involved in a lot of, so as, as these new AI algorithms come out from a diagnostic perspective, I think because of your vast experience, a lot of these different organizations that are developing new AI have, have come to you to help them standardize their AI products and to create, you know, what's who's the ground truth, truth for, for a lot of these new AI products. Just in general, why don't just tell us how do you feel uh, these algorithms are doing and the role that they'll play going into the future? Even you know, maybe give us a status update on where they may be now and how you see them evolving into the future. Oh yeah, well right now they're they're very good. They're very robust algorithms. They detect the tumor almost every time, but not hundred percent yet. That's why, you know, we're constantly evaluating different algorithms so we don't, you know, choose one over the other right now. We're just test driving, so to speak, multiple company algorithms. They all work very similarly. And the, uh, the beauty of it is it really is almost like a, another game changer because it's almost like providing the pathologist with a, with a life like a net underneath them, like a urine trapeze and you fall off, you're not going to die, so to speak. Yeah. And so the algorithms are extremely helpful, both for detecting the cancer, but they also serve its weight in gold when cases are benign. And the algorithm tells you it's benign. It takes a while to get used to the fact that not that you're not going to look at these cases, but you have this feeling that the algorithm, it's another set of eyes, essentially. And so you're getting like almost like two pathologists, well-trained well expert pathologists, for the price of one, the algorithm immediately, you know, kind of highlights the tumor. It even breaks it down into Gleason grades between three, four, and fives. It's some Many of these algorithms detect perineural invasion. So there's lots of things that these algorithms do. We currently use it as a QA, QC tool. So after we've annotated our uh, tumors, if there are any or if it's benign, then we turn the algorithm on and see how smart or how non-smart we were, so to speak. And it's a game changer because eventually when we get to the point where the algorithms are extremely accurate, it's almost like 
an autopilot on a, on a jetliner, essentially. It'll basically fly you from A to B like it does today. But it's like the analogy is even though the autopilot can actually take off and land the plane, I don't think anyone's going to get on a plane where there's nobody sitting in the pilot seat. So the same thing here. You need a pathologist, obviously, in case, because sometimes the algorithm does go askew and it'll either overcall tumor or mistumor or tell you benign areas are tumor. So you always need the pathologist to kind of hit the kill switch, so to speak, in case something goes astray. But we're getting mm-hmm. very close to being almost 100% accurate. And that's the goal here, of course, is you cannot be 95, 90% accurate. When it comes to prostate or any biopsies in this world, you can't say, well, we're, we're right 95% of the time. That's that right. 5% is a huge number, by the way. And so right. basically huge. the number of prostate biopsies done around, around the world and around the U.S. So this thing has to be like a zero defect kind of a product, essentially. And these algorithms are getting very close to that. So it'll really assist us as pathologists in the future. And I see one day that the algorithm becomes the report, which will be kind of another game changer. Yeah. So, and I love that qualifier. So you talked about the way you use it currently as more of a QC, QA check on the back end. And I like the thought of this second set of eyes and and as these algorithms get better and better, and to your point, they need to be 100%, right? I mean, you know, I think that's the process of, of the regulatory agencies that help us figure out when when they can be used as primary diagnosis. And may, that may be who knows how far away. But but the use of algorithms as a QC check on the back end seems like a great way to at least start with these already fairly good algorithms. So I think that's oh, great definitely. for I mean, I I saw a study a couple of years ago out of France where they took a bunch of benign prostate biopsies that were a few years old, let's say, and they ran the algorithm on them. And between 9 and 12% of the cases were not benign. That's frightening, to be honest with you. Yeah. The algorithm detected high-grade pins, atypical foci, and uh, full-blown cancers in many cases. And that's really, I think, irresponsible and you know, not doing any any patient uh, justice here, obviously, by missing cases. Not that they went out to miss it. I'm not blaming anyone, but that's kind of the state of the art at the time. I don't know who read these cases, what their training was, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that the algorithms were able to pick up that big of a percentage of, quote, unquote, missed diagnoses, it shows that the algorithm is really ready for prime time. Yeah, and can save patients' lives, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. So here's a, a maybe a little bit different question, and we can maybe end on this question. Um, so if you were looking back, if you go back in time and you're uh, picking out your specialty right now in medical school, uh, what do you think you would do? Would you do the? Would you? Keep with pathology, knowing all the advancements. I mean, would you embrace that? Would you look at it as an opportunity, or, or do you think you would look at a different specialty based off of maybe the advancements? <laughs> I'd no, love I mean, to hear I, your I, I, I always liked pathology as a you know medical student. I just enjoyed looking in in a microscope, and you know, so every case is a challenge to try to challenge you intellectually. What are you looking at? You know, what are the processes, the disease processes? Is this malign? Malignant is this benign. I personally like that. 
the majority of medical students don't go into pathology, just so you know that. So it's not like a high in demand kind of a specialty. It's actually towards the bottom of the list of specialties throughout the training. However, there are people like me who enjoy it. And I, I, I enjoy working at a microscope now, now on a digital tablet. I got rid of my microscope probably three or four years ago. Working with an iPad Pro has some huge advantages that we didn't really get into. The fact that I can sign out literally from anywhere in the world, as long as I have a digital connect. The fact that I can consult my colleagues or they can consult me in real time is huge when it comes to digital pathology. I'll annotate something or somebody will annotate something on a, on a, the biopsy chip. They'll send me a text or an email say, what do you think? Is this benign, malignant? And they can get an answer back literally in minutes. I remember the old days, we used to send the slides, package them up, and ship them to Baltimore and wait a week or two or longer, depending on John Epstein's availability or whoever we were sending it to. And this is a common occurrence. And now yeah. the patient care is just so so streamlined today that the second opinion comes back literally in real time. Yeah, that's such a valid point. We haven't gotten into the digital side as much. We talked about AI, but but the ability to improve clinical care through second opinions and consults, even peer review consults, or just your your colleagues that you work with, and I love that. So it's basically in your workflow. It's it's as easy as just giving them access to that case, that de-identified information, but giving them access to the case and then their availability to jump on wherever they may have a good Well, well they, they, good my colleagues right? are passionate. Well, my colleagues at Pathman already have access to the case. Right. So it's not okay. like that. I mean, we just say, hey, what do you think of case one, two, three, four? Look at core it. number C. You think that's a Gleason six? You think it's been, whatever. And then like within minutes, literally, you'll get an answer back. And the can, fact can that it's I, been annotated, yeah. you can, they can see exactly what you're talking about. That's the beauty <laughs> that's of so it. Great. I'll annotate something on the, on the, you know, iPad Pro and my colleague doesn't have to waste their time looking around. They know exactly where, or we can actually just jump on a Zoom call like we are now, or we can actually look at the case together. That's like extremely valuable. It's almost like a a virtual multi-headed scope. Does it make you more apt to to bringing your colleagues in on a case because it's so convenient? I mean, you think of the the alternative of of having the lab package up the slides and ship them to wherever. I mean, how regular, I guess, how often are you are you doing these type of reviews with your colleagues? Probably once a week, once a week. Well, it's not like a scheduled thing. It's like when you come across a difficult or challenging or interesting case and you want to share it with a colleague because that's how you learn from each other. And you immediately just send out an email. Say, hey, guys, take a look at this case, at this part. What do you think? You can invite as many people as you want or just a single person. Or you can invite everybody to look at the case. Um, it's that just, you know, that's how pathologists learn from each other when you're in a hospital. It's usually by the water cooler you can kind of share and go into the room with a multi-headed scope and show each other cases casually. But here you can do it from the benefit of your backyard. I mean, literally anywhere you are, you can, you can share cases with colleagues. And that's invaluable, to be honest with you. I love it. I have, okay, this is truly my last question because, because you and I could speak about this forever, I think. <laughs> um, so 
as you're you're one of the more experienced GU pathologists that that I've certainly ever met. I think you're one of the more experienced ones in this in the country. Um, but your adaptation to digital pathology, because you adapted later in your career, for those that are maybe later in their careers and are looking at, at digital pathology and the workflow for the first time, I guess what what input or, or feedback would you give um, that that transition from going from the microscope to whatever device that you're using to look at it? How was that for you? And uh, was that a difficult transition or, or what, it, what was that like? No, for me personally, it was very simple. And, you know, at first you're kind of hesitant is the clarity of the quality, the, the, the image equal to what you see under the glass slide. And it is with the current system I've got with Lumea and Pathma and so forth. It's just a matter of taking the leap. And I would encourage people, if you have the interest to do, to take the leap, jump into it, see what it's like. I mean, you can always go back to the microscope if you really hate it, to be honest with you. Yeah. you know, yeah. And some people probably have. But there's so much upside potential to going digital that it would be foolish not to at least give it a shot and try it. Because the world's moving forward, not backwards. And AI, you can't do AI on a glass slide, obviously. There's no digital image for yeah. that. So that's useless to you. Um, you. I mean, if you want to be part of the 21st, 22nd century, so... You've got to go digital because there's so much information on the, on these slides that we don't even fathom today, to be honest with you. It'll be, you know, available down the road. Somebody will come up with something else and say, Oh, it's all digitized. So all these images stored up on the cloud there, there's so much information we haven't even tapped into yet, to be honest with you. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, well, this has been great, Dr. Kahane. It's it's been such a privilege to have you uh, on our our modest little podcast here and uh, get your input. We're we're really appreciative of it, and uh, yeah, look for forward to speaking to you at another time. Sure, anytime. Appreciate it. Tune in next month for our next podcast. Thank you to the sponsors of our program, Lumea and the Digital Diagnostic Summit, our listeners, and our guests for making this possible and for your support.